The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Savior and the mission he gave us to go into all the world to make disciples of every nation and baptizing believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for our leaders of our nation. I first and foremost pray if there is any leader of any public office from the smallest hamlet to the highest office of our land, if they do not know you, Lord, that you would put people and, 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 and scripture and, and, and just every opportunity to hear the gospel in front of them, and that, Lord, you would save them first and foremost in Jesus' name. For those who do know you, those who are walking with you, that they would see their allegiance higher than any political constituency or political party, but they would see first and foremost that someday, Romans 14, 12, they will stand and give an account for their service to you. Father, we pray for our military, our armed forces, that you would keep them safe around the world. So we remember those who've passed. We also pray equally for those who are serving us around this world. Give wisdom to our leaders. Give grace and, and mercy to those who discharge duties. Father, there's so much that goes on, but most and foremost, we pray especially for those who know Christ. Lord, may we stand for you, may we live for you, and Father, as we talk about your coming in part today, your second coming, Lord, may we keep that in mind as we look to live for you in these last days. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you that at the cross, everything was purchased finally, completely, and satisfactory to your demands, Lord, for our justice, for your justice on our heads. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, I invite you this morning, if you have your Bible, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, Brennan uh, was very adamant to get the uh, slideshow up with the correct uh, logo. So, Brennan, thank you inside for doing that as uh, we got that on there. And uh, we are in our eighth installment. It's hard to believe. We have five more weeks to go. We're going through this week and then four weeks of June. Uh, just a personal note, I will be out, our family will be out over 4th of July, so Pastor Nelson's in charge. I think Pastor Nelson's in charge that day, sounds about right. He's going to be preaching over something, and then after that, we're going to be in the life of David, life of David. We're going to be looking at David's life for about three months as we enter into the late summer, uh, kind of early fall time as we do. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week, we talked about a topic that kind of surprised some of you, it's kind of out of the blue. Uh, and I want to appreciate, uh, thank you for your uh, patience as we went through that. But we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 9 this morning. And Paul's going to, we're going to read down through verse uh, 17 and 18. Uh, if you're here this morning, if you'll join us in standing, this is Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, starting in verse 9. We probably, this is going to be a two-parter within the series. We'll probably make it to verse 13 today. We're going to start in verse 9 and go as far as we go from there. Here we go, chapter 4, verse 9 through 13. This is God's word this morning. Paul writes this. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But, verse 13, these are the familiar verses we're more used to, funerals and otherwise. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who've fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I hope you're ready for this. Some of you have been waiting for a sermon about the end times for six years since I got here. We're going to be in verses 9 through mostly 13 today. That's going to bring you back next week. But I want you to know this is a writing that he's doing. Remember, he's been teaching them about who they are in Christ. Now he's exhorting them. But verses 9 through 13, before we get to the second coming, are important about how we live in light of the second coming as we do. Let's pray together. We'll get in our sermon from there. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for your word. May you bless the reading of it, the hearing and doing of it. But Lord, this morning, as we continue through this book of the sermon title, uh, Countercultural in First Thessalonians, Father, give us wisdom. If there's anything in here that we need to be reminded of, may your spirit bring that to our minds. If there's anything in here we've learned anew, may you apply it to our hearts. If there's any comfort here, if there's any challenge, if there's any conviction, whatever it is, Lord, you know our needs. So individually, we pray for that. Corporately, as a church, a tower view, a body of our fellowship, may you be blessed to see us grow closer together in these truths. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. As you may be seated, thank you so much. Well, you know, in times like these, it is often these headlines. These are actual headlines that came through, and I just looked this up. I just simply typed in Christians in trouble. But in today's age, it's not uncommon uh, in the last several weeks to hear headlines like this, quote, Christian pastor arrested for crimes against a child. Quote, local deacon charged with breaking and entering. Quote, church treasurer charged with stealing money over 20 years. Quote, this actually happened, church splits over color of the carpet. You think I make this stuff up. Google News can tell you all about this stuff. And I think we get the picture sometimes that Christians can be bad in the name of Christ. I think we get that. The Crusades, the witch trials, the Inquisitions, you name Christianity around something, and often there's a bad event associated with it. And our history and our present are not devoid those who, if they are in Christ, know better and live for Christ, or who need to know better and live for Christ instead of selfish gain. This is why Peter said in 1 Peter 2.15, he said, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the talk of foolish people. So what are we as Christians to be known by? Often we're known by the headlines that make the negative news. But regardless of popular opinion, the Bible tells Christians exactly how we are to be known. People should think of us in this way, and Paul said it this way. He said they should think of us as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4.1. To follow Jesus means to follow the one who has known both for what he was for and what he was against. And he pointed people to a better way as he corrected their views and their way of life. Yet so often we are known for what we are against as Christians and not known for what we should be known for. And Jesus comfort, confronted the hypocrisy of Pharisees and he challenged them to a new way of life. But in the same vein, he comforted the woman in adultery. But then he called her to leave her sin behind. 
And so the Bible corrects, rebukes, and encourages us. But it would be ridiculously presumptuous of us to suggest we have a better way of doing things in our Savior and of the Scriptures. But to be for something often, we must declare clearly what we are against. But we often forget to show and say what we are for. And not being known for what we are against sounds nice on the surface, but attempting to love God and neighbors is not an option. So often as Christians, what does Jesus say about us? We are to be known by Christians by our love. And so often we're not. We're known by the headlines. We're known by what we post on social media. We're known by those, those, those things that just really rile and stir the pot. But the faithful Christian will be known for what they're for and what they're against, just like the Christ they seek to follow. So have you thought about lately what it really means to live for Christ in the midst of a generation and a time and a place where people know what you're against and not what you're for? Have you considered how you are to live in the light of Christ by loving one another as a church and as a body? Because friends, it's so important. I guarantee you, as you look back over this last 16, 15 months since the pandemic started, we're still in it, I guess. I don't know how it works. You figure that out. But most Christians are not known by what they stand for. They're known by what they're against. And that's a difference. Our big idea over the next couple of weeks is that the hope of the Bible is for Christians is not a rapture, but a resurrection because we have to live in light of eternity. Friends, the Bible tells Christians we will be known by our love, both for Christians and for those who are without Christ. And it's easy to see people who we disagree with, who we're disappointed in, who someone posted on social media about, and think of them as our enemy. But remember, no person is our enemy. In fact, we rail not against flesh and blood, is what Paul said, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. Every person is made in the image of God and loved by Him and worthy of our respect and of our love. And so our greatest enemy is not physical, it is spiritual. And as we look to know how to live in light of the second coming of Christ, Paul's going to mention these things. But the things that we often want to talk about are, when's Jesus going to return? Or did you see that blue moon last Wednesday or that blood moon here? Or did you see this happening in the news over there? Or my pastor said that the Christ is coming back on this date. We love that stuff. But before Paul gets there, he tells us the more important stuff which is how we react to each other, how we love each other, and how that plays out within the world around us. We're going to look at eight things in the next two weeks. We'll probably get through three or four of them this morning. A correct understanding of how we live in these last days. And I want you to remind you, verses 1 through 8, as we looked at last week, Paul was talking about how we live, in, 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 you might call a sexual ethic, how we are to control our bodies in a context of a marriage. This morning, he's going to work out how we love and work with each other in, in, in light of what? In light of Christ returning. But Christians, I will tell you, churches don't split often because of bad doctrine, bad teaching. Churches don't split often because of, of anything else. Then we don't love each other like Christ has called us to love. So I want you to get that this morning. Here's the first thing he tells us, how we live in light of Christ's return. He says how, to, how we love other believers matters. Look at verses 9 and 10. He tells you right from the get-go. He goes, he says here, he says, now concerning this, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Wouldn't that be great? If someone, when you get a job, uh, a job review and they write on there, you're already doing this. Doesn't that make you feel pretty good about yourself? Yeah, I got this down. I understand it. But in verse nine, Paul tells them, he says, brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You have no need. 
What is he saying here? He's saying that this group of people have loved each other so well that Paul has no need to remind them of anything of what they're already called to do. And this word here, brotherly love, is the word Philadelphia. You know that name, don't you? The city of what? Brotherly love, right? You may hate the Eagles football team, but you know the name of their city. It means a deep affection. It means a, an affection that is so close in a marriage and in a friendship that you literally can look at each other and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. That's what we're called to do in light of Christ's coming. And by way of application, this means personality differences don't matter. This means how you view this issue in life really doesn't matter that much. What matters at the base is, is that at the end of the day, is do you see your brother and your sister as truly your brother and sister in Christ, regardless of, of God-given skin color, regardless of God-given physique or intellect or ability, do you see each other as your brother and sister of Jesus Christ? Now, most of us are going to look at that and say, uh-huh, yeah, come on, check off, let's get to the good stuff, let's get down to verse 13. But brothers in Christ often are those that are most opposed to each other. I don't take for granted that we have great unity at this church, at least from what we understand from the pastoral chairs. I heard a brother this week uh, at one of our local sister churches on a podcast. He said, you know, for the first five or six years of our church, we took for granted that people were just going to get along. And then a thing called COVID came. And people had differing opinions on this and this and this and this and this and this. I praise God that God has brought us together despite all that, important as it is. Friends, I want to I thank the Lord that you have shown each other grace. There have been arguments at times, can I be frank? There have been times of heated discussions about, do we follow the city? Do we not follow the city? We have to wear masks all the time. We don't wear masks. You guys have been on all opposite sides, but at the end of the day, you come back together, and that's what it's about. Don't lose that. Because guess what? As we go forward as a church and we talk about what our building restructure needs to be, how we prepare leadership for the future, and all these things that we need to do to shore this church up for the coming years, you're going to disagree with each other. But you come back to this verse. We want to be known as a church where Paul does not have to exhort them and say, will y'all just stop it? I mean, parents, having, if you've had two kids before with one toy, you understand this, right? Come to our house about 8 a.m. any Sunday morning, and you will see the, the, the great acrobats that we try to do as parents to get everyone happy and make sure everyone is playing safely and sharing and all those things. But he says, we have no one to teach you. But friends, that's how we're different than the world. Christians should be about each other because we're about our Lord together. But he goes on. He says, you have been taught by God to love one another. What does this mean? Well, oh, Paul's, Paul's saying that God has taught them. Look, if you're a Christian, you're going to love other Christians. Can we say it bluntly and clearly? John even said this in 1 John 4, 9. If you say you love your brother, but you hate your brother, you know not the, the, the God of the brother. It's basically what he says. So if you're a Christian and you really hate another Christian and you can't get over that, and, and that just keeps driving you, friend, you need to take that to Jesus. You really do. Because if you're taught by God, that means that God is working in your life. And through a continual work of the Spirit, pushing you to love that person. Look, there are people, as a pastor in this church, it's hard to love at times. But guess what? You have a pastor that's hard to love at times too, amen? It's okay to say amen to that. We know. I know. My wife knows. But I want you to know it's together. And it's deeper than human language. He says that God taught them. Look, if you're really a Christian... If you're really God's son or daughter by faith alone and Jesus alone, then you will want to see love and harmony in the church. And this is not just singing kumbaya together. It's campfire season, isn't it? 
is doesn't it just mean we get Craig out there and say, Kumbaya, my Lord. Doesn't it just sound great? Sometimes when we do community together in the light of Christ's coming, it means that we have times of peace and we have to have discussions. But friends, if we're really together, we love each other because God first loved us. We love because he first loved us. But look at verse 10. He says that this love that is going to be an example is also increasing. He says, indeed, we, you, what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. In other words, don't be okay with the status quo of how you know each other in this church. Don't be okay with the status quo of, well, I love that person. I, I care for them. But what happens when something comes out about them that you're not so sure? Do you still love them in Christ? And that's what he says. He says, indeed, this is more and more. Do you know the two things we're called to do more and more before the coming of Jesus Christ? It's not building, it's not budgets, it's not, it's not butts and seats. The three Bs of the Baptist world. It is right here. You're to love each other more and more. That is one thing that you're commanded to do more and more and more before the coming of Christ. The second is this, and you're doing it right now. Hebrews 10 says, to encourage one another and assemble together all the more until the day comes. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. So we don't need anyone to tell us to love since we're taught by God, but because of the effects of sin, we do need reminders about this. We're starting to come back inside a lot of us together. And with that, some of those old things that this person does or that person does, I can't believe they lift their hand up at worship. They must be one of those Pentecostal types. Well, I can't believe that person looks like he's just ready to knock somebody out. You know what? Go ask him about it. Don't assume. Get out there. Because, friends, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to love increasingly. And what this means is we simply do not love as we should because we don't see the need to love. And Paul says, don't settle it. If you want to be known as a church that's countercultural, don't be okay with just knowing someone's name. Don't be okay with just knowing a little bit about them. Loving them means you get to know them spiritually, and you ask them how they're doing spiritually. You care for them physically, but in dealing with our hurts, our lack of maturity, and sometimes our sins, we go back to the fact that God loves us, and we're a family together. Look, if you don't like worshiping with the people around you right now, then heaven's going to be a great shock when you get there someday. Because everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, I think it's still online. One of our seminary guys last week, I won't say his name because he's going to be going uh, to service soon, but if you could listen to his uh, uh, sermon from last Sunday night, he talked about this in a very short way, and it was very encouraging. I encourage you to listen to that. First point, how do you live in light of Christ's coming? Our love is going to be different. Secondly, verses 11 and 12, how do we live in the midst of unbelievers? He tells us here. Kudos to Pastor Nelson. Nelson grew up, and he shares this often. He's from central Indiana. He grew up around the Amish. And so Nelson reminded me these next two verses are actually the motto, in part, I think, of the Amish people. Uh, it makes sense. Look at verses 11 and 12. Grab your Bible. Let's read this together again. So we're to love each other. We're to do that practically, spiritually. But he says how we live in the midst of unbelievers is also, secondly, a witness in the days of coming of Christ. He says in verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we've instructed you so you may work, walk properly before outsiders dependent on no one. I want to remind you before we get into this, but Paul is telling the Thessalonians to be less frantic and not less exuberant. A person who is constantly on the move is a bother to other people. 
that old phrase, mind your own bees, wax, actually can be attributed back to these verses. Some of you are saying, yes, that means the pastor can never call me or ask me how I'm doing spiritually again. Leave me alone, pastor. Be careful. There is a balance here. The extremes, let's put up our guardrails. There are extremes that say that we, you can never talk to me about my relationship with Jesus. It's my relationship with Jesus, pastor. Leave me alone. There are others that, man, if they don't know every detail about your spiritual life, they don't think they can love you. Somewhere in between, we're called to do both. It is our job to remind you as pastors, it is our job at times to get in your spiritual beeswax. If you start walking off the trail this way, as a pastor, we would be remiss, and we should be confronted in our remissness, if that's a word, if we don't come after you in a loving hand. The same for you, for us. We're in this together, right? But at the same time, we don't need to know every jot and tittle of your life to the point where we become the KGB of spiritual Christianity. That's just weird. There's a balance. It's Scripture. But he says here to lead a quiet life. Oh, boy. Whew. If Mark Zuckerberg in 2004, when he made Facebook, could have had this plat uh, tattooed above his computer before he created Facebook, how might our lives be different? To lead a quiet life. What is he saying here? He's saying the reasons for doing this is the anticipation of Christ coming was causing lots of people to get excited. Shouldn't you be excited about Christ coming? Amen, you should. But that excitement was causing people to just be silly and be, be, be just not themselves and to be out there and do things that was not becoming of Christ. They were seeking ambition within the church. They were trying to stir the pot. They were appointing themselves as confronters of other people. And Paul says, no, you are different than unbelievers. It's okay to confront a brother or sister in Christ who is in sin. See Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Titus 1, etc. But at the same time, your life is to be lived quietly. 1 Timothy 2, Paul tells people to do this as well. Richard taught on this at the men's dinner a couple months ago. We are to live quiet and godly lives. And then he goes on to say, mind your own affairs. Woo. Hashtag, where's social media and all this, right? He says, mind your own affairs. It refers to what is private and personal. When our first priority is taking care of ourselves, not in a self-centered way, but in a biblical way, we are more or less likely to become nosy and go around bashing other people in the name of loving conversation. There are some people who are more Holy Spirit than the Holy Spirit is in someone else's life. Maybe you know them. You've met them before, haven't you? They're the ones of the prayer groups that, in Jesus' name, and they just, they're the loudest they're usually the most brash. We've seen them walk in our doors. I'm going to be a committed member of this church. Oh, I love your preaching, Pastor. What a beautiful congregation. Let me tell you what God has told me about this church. They last two weeks, and they're out the door to the next church because they know their personality isn't going to make it here because they're not what God has called to be here. Is it okay to pray loud? Sure. Is it okay to, to love the church and want to be a part of the church? Absolutely. It's another thing to not mind your own business. Let me be very clear here. What he's saying is this. He's saying that to the point at which your Christianity becomes so overwhelming spiritually that you become so super spiritual as a Christian that people can't even talk to you about Christ because you're so super spiritual, you need to cool it off a bit. Now, hear me clearly. Don't cool your love for Christ. But this is a super spiritual person. Have you ever met someone like that? 
Like every time you ask him, how you doing, brother? Great praise, Jesus, I'm doing love. Woo! Oh, if you've never met someone like that, and I'm not talking about Craig, and sometimes he can be like this. He's smiling. He's red-faced here in the front if you can't see him. It's not who I'm talking about. But there are people in churches who get so super spiritual, they're not spiritual at all. They're all energy. And what he's saying to them is, look, be excited about the coming of Christ. Love the coming of Christ. But make sure you do not go from one extreme noisiness to the other extreme isolated. You be careful. You be engaged in the people of God. You respect people. You love them. You ask them how they're doing. You, you get to know them. You, you get to know them deeply. You get to confess your sins one to another. You do all those things, but you don't allow your spiritual life to overtake theirs because you are closer connected to God than they are. Or you can read the tea leaves, so to speak, better than they can. Be careful. So he goes on. We're in the second point. These are subpoints. He says, work with your own hands. So you have some people who are, who are isolated. You have some people who just need to mind their own business in the coming of Christ. But look at verse 11. He says, to work with your hands. Now, this scares me because if any of y'all know me, I'm, less like, I'm more likely to bust my hand with a hammer than to help anything that goes on the other end of a hammer. It's not what he means here. What he means and what he is saying is that we all have a responsibility to help those in need. We have a responsibility not to help them if they refuse to work or look for a job. We have a benevolence policy here at the church. We will help people to a certain degree, but at some point, the church is not a welfare system. And even broadly, you could take this even more broadly as an application to our country, that if one will not work, they will not eat. Look, there's a time and a place to take care of people. There's a time and a place to help the poor and disfranchised. But if you are able to work, the Bible commands you to go and work. If you're able to do that, go and do it. That's what Paul says. Part of the help of the people in condition of, uh, of not having work is helping them find work. And if they're a Christian, instructing them to. Wives, this is why uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul tells uh, wives not to become busybodies. If there's a widow who's at an age they can remarry, to not be a busybody in a chatterbox, in a gossip box with other people. Because if they're able to, to get married, they're able to support their husband, that's what they should do. But he says to work. And so, friends, we live, in a, we live in a part of the country where this is pretty much understood. But there are places around the world where when, can I just, can I just speak frankly and very simply here? I talked to one of our missionaries this week where one of his prayers was that he's the white guy in the group. They know he has money. They know his church, us, send him money. And he wants to get them off the dependence of letting the white man, so to speak, the foreigner, so to speak, serve them with money all the time. And he's not doing that. He's doing a great job of managing that. Because in the past, missionaries have come out, and they haven't handed it out like candy, but anything they needed, it was provided by the outside people. And he's raising them up to see, look, we're here for you. We want to grow you in Christ. We want to be a part of the mission. But you have to be willing to sacrifice for this cause as well. Does that make sense? And so it is with Paul. If we want to be those who are witnesses for Christ, our work ethic is going to show how much we're watching for Christ because he says he can come like a thief in the night, didn't he? We're to be prepared. Last point is the second point here is we're to conduct ourselves with integrity. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be dependent on no one. What is he saying? He's saying this. 
all through chapter 4, Paul has two things in mind. Let me remind you of these. There are people without Christ, and there are people with Christ. There's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland, World War II type response to Jesus. You either know him or you don't. You're either in the body of Christ, forgiven, redeemed, justified, all those great things, or you're not. You're a sinner at war with God. That's it. There's no other camp that's out there. That's why as our nation, when we start getting into, well, I identify as a cat. Well, I identify as an alligator. I identify my identity as whatever fill in the blank. And if you've seen questionnaires lately, have you noticed that? There's the two classic genders, male, female, and then it's fill in the blank, whatever you want to be. The Bible doesn't know anything else but this. You are either who God made you to be, you're either a man or a woman, that's it, or you are either a Christian or you're not, that's it. It's really that simple. It's not rocket science. And so what he says is, you are to walk properly before the outsiders. Why do you mind your own business? Why do you work with your hands? Why do you try not to rile people up and live a quiet life? Why? Because Christians need to know their witness goes further than just the people around them. It is what the unbelieving world likes to see in those people. And so, friends, why does he say this? Because non-Christians are always looking to Christians for a reason not to believe. This past week, two weeks ago, uh, I, I'm, I, well, Craig and, and Pastor Nelson are even too old a little bit for this. Sorry, guys. DC Talk, one of the uh, 90s bands that came out. Uh, Stacy's nodding her head. Stacy's perpetually 29, so she's always young enough. But DC Talk was one of the great Christian youth bands of the 1990s. They came out with songs like Jesus Freak and other things. Well, one of their original members came out and said he is now a de-Christian. He's no longer a Christian. He just can't believe in it. He wrote about it for years, made his millions off of it, but he's, he's de-Christian now. That's a thing, guys. Why do you work hard? Why do you live a quiet life? Why do you mind your own business? Why do you do these things? Because the unbelieving world looks at people like that guy who was on DC Talk and says, you're just a nutcase. You basically milked Christians out of money for 20 years and rode off into the sunset, pretty much. How you live matters. How you live matters. Why does he say to not be dependent on anyone? Well, because we're to provide for the family's needs. We're to keep from being a burden from others. We're to, we're to be productive in our society. And that is a difference between what Christians are and what unchristians aren't. Please hear me clearly. This doesn't mean non-Christians don't work hard doesn't mean they don't mind their own business. It doesn't mean they, they don't try to keep to themselves, so to speak. But the difference is this. When you work, you work for a higher authority, don't you? Your boss isn't really the boss that's your boss. Your master is watching you. When you're at home, you're at the nurse's office, you're doing whatever you're doing in your retirement or your thing, your eye is always on Christ because Christ's eye is always on you. That's who we work for. And if we keep that in mind, our lives, our work lives will be so different. People may say, why do you give that extra effort when everyone else backs away? Why do you not cheat on this part of the form when everyone else does? Why do you have the integrity to not do all these other things that people in the workplace are doing, virtually even at these times? When everyone else is taking a nap and they close off their Zoom, Tina, you understand this, they turn off their Zoom camera and they're really taking a nap. Oh, I'm listening. Yeah, right. We know what you're doing. You're sleeping behind the screen. It matters. 
Why does it matter? He tells you, and we're going to end here. Look at verse 13. Why does it matter? It matters how we love each other, number one. It matters what and how we live, but it matters because what separates us from unbelievers? Look at verse 13. He tells you. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Why are you different than other people? Because you have hope. You have hope. What is that hope? That on that cross 2,000 years ago, when Jesus said those words, it is finished, that he wasn't just blushing, he wasn't pulling your leg, he didn't say, psych. He meant it. That's the hope you have. Why do we live for Christ and love each other? It's because we are different, friends. When this world is dying and decaying and is just going to a deeper cesspool every day, we have hope. When you look around this country, when you look around at families, when you look around your, your neighborhood and you think, man, how is this ever going to get right? We have hope. Our greatest days of Christians aren't the good old days. Our good old days are always out ahead of us. Always. Why? Because Christ is there and he's coming again. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. The pagans would say this. They would say, after death, there's no reviving. After the grave, there's no meeting again. There's an actual inscription that came from this church at Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica in Greece, or another inscription that came from this church's area. It said, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. You see, as a Greek, as a Thessalonian Greek, being rid of the body was their great hope. But as a Christian, being reunited with Christ in, in your spiritual body is your greatest hope. Friends, as this world decays, as this world goes out in all these things, I want you to know your greatest hope is that God has already given you the greatest hope. He came back from the dead. Amen? He's alive. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's coming again. And I want you to know as we end on verse 13 that what separates you most from unbelievers is the difference of how you hold your belief in this life. I've told you before, I admit, there were some dark days in my mind as we went through this pandemic. We are still in the midst of it. I, I, you know, I talked to running friends around the world who are in Brazil and Australia, and they're locked down. Some families are still very sick. The vaccine has not rolled out or whatever you want to do with that as much as here as it is in other places. It's a real thing. We have four people in our church in the last two weeks that have caught the virus. It's a real thing. But I think for a lot of us, this has been a very depressing year. It's been a very depressing year. You couldn't see each other as much, at least weren't advised to. You know, your job is different. Your family's different. If you have kids at home, you, well, you survived. Amen. If you had grandkids at home, you survived. But I want to tell you, throughout that whole thing, the hope in Christ has never changed, has it? Our hope has even increased more as we've cried out, Lord, this world is crazy. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And what separates us is not necessarily what we do that helps. It's ultimately what we believe in, and that is a risen Christ. Friends, next week, we are going to get in the weeds a little bit about all these things. 
But whether you believe you're going to be raptured up and your clothes are going to drop to the ground or you're going to be here through the whole tribulation, here's what I want to say to you before you even think about next week. What matters is this. Jesus is coming back. That's it. That's where our hope lies. And more so, you've been redeemed in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, and we'll close with that. Next week, we'll get into the second coming of Christ and what it looks like. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you so much for the opportunity to remind ourselves the greatest apologetic that you gave us is that we would, they would know we are Christians by our love. That's a hymn, but it's also straight out of Scripture. Father, you've told us how to live in the midst of unbelievers, where to live a quiet life, to mind our own affairs, to work hard, Lord, and, and to be dependent on no one. And Lord, our greatest hope, that third point, was that we would, uh, that separates us from unbelievers is that we have hope, not hope that something might happen, but a guarantee because, Father, your son guaranteed that he would come again. Again, Lord, we know not the day or the hour, and we can debate signs and times and wonders and all those things. But at the end of the day, we agree on this one thing. Your son is coming again. He's coming visibly, gloriously, literally. Father, he's coming powerfully. He's coming victoriously. He's coming with all the nations behind him the redeemed from every nation, and we will worship around the throne. And it won't matter so much in that day about what church we belong to so long as that church, a true church of preaching Christ and risen from the dead, faith alone in Christ alone, all the great basics of the faith. For Father, that day will come and everything in this world will be just a, a long memory as we bask around the great good news, the old, old story that Jesus died for me. Father, I pray this morning. For anyone here who just seems to be revived in that fact, maybe it's been a while since they've been in church, maybe it's been a while since they've really considered what Christ has done for them, that you would stir their souls this morning. For those of us with Christ, continue to feel our love for each other, our desire to live before unbelievers in a way that honors you, not to please their eyes or anything like that, to please you first, but as an outflow, those four things in verses 11 and 12, and Father, may our hope be in you. We love you so much, Lord. Thank you for Jesus our risen Lord. We pray in Jesus' name this morning.